Philippians chapter 1. And we have we are going to try to wrap up the first paragraph in this letter that Paul is writing to the believers in Philippi. Just remind ourselves a little bit of what we've already uncovered in this going through this letter, that Paul, in writing this, he expresses more than any other of his writings in the New Testament is his warmth for these people, these believers. They have been partners with him. They've supported him. He was part of seeing some of these believers come to Christ initially. And so in writing to them, he does this with joy. And what we're going to focus on in verses 9 through 11 is what Paul prays for these people. And so in order to do that, we're going to read the entirety of this first paragraph, but do recognize that we're going to concentrate on the last three verses, which are very weighty verses. There's a lot in there. So let's go ahead and read. We'll start reading Philippians chapter 1 and verse 3, and we'll read to the end of this paragraph. Follow along with me as we read. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about you all, because I hold you in my heart. For you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent, and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ, to the glory and praise of God. Well, before we get much further, let's go ahead and let's just pause and let's pray and ask God to bless us as we seek to understand his word this morning. Oh God, help us to understand your word. Help us to see it and know what it says, but may we be filled with it in our hearts so that we would be able to live it out. May we be changed by your word as a result of our time examining it this morning. For it's in Christ's name that we ask this. Amen. 
Well, the portion of scripture we just read is a prayer. Okay? And this is an intercessory prayer that we have just read. It is, that is, it is different from other types of prayers we could make. There are other prayers we could make, prayers of confession, prayers of adoration, prayers of thanksgiving. And what makes this an intercessory prayer, as opposed to something else, is, well, math. An intercessory prayer has three people or groups of people involved. You have the one who is praying, and they are praying to God, and they are praying for the benefit of someone else. There's three people involved. That's as opposed to just a prayer of confession or adoration where it's just the person praying and God himself that's involved. And Paul, the Apostle Paul, we can keep in mind that at the time he is writing this letter, he is in prison. He has been imprisoned for at least four years, from what we can tell. Four years he has been confined, all for something that really he didn't do. And he could have easily, at this time, focused on his own needs, his own circumstances. I mean, he's in prison, after all. Okay? You think there's things that he could be in prayer for regarding his own circumstances? Like he would be released of all charges? But actually, I mean, not that he's not praying for those things, but he also prays for these people in the city of Philippi. His ministry continues through prayer. And Paul, what he reflects in this paragraph is that he is praying regularly for these people. Notice in verse 3 how he says, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, Always, in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy. Paul is able to pray for these people, and he is brought to joy just in remembering. And that's one aspect of his prayer. That's what we examined last week, is that Paul is able to pray and do this with joyful thanksgiving, not just for these people that what they have done, but actually through what God has done through them. And then in verse 9, after Paul mentions that he is praying, and he does this with a spirit of thanksgiving and joy, notice in verse 9 that we actually get to the content of what Paul actually prays for them where it begins in verse 9, it is my prayer that, okay, and then he goes into what he is praying. And so given what Paul has already mentioned of these people, that these are people who have been partners with him 
in advancing the gospel. Notice in verse 5 that he's able to make this prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And last week we explored what the book of Acts tells us of how some of these people in this town of Philippi, from the very moment they turned away from their sin towards Christ, how they partnered with Paul. They began supporting him. They began giving to him. And that began from that first day all the way until the time Paul is writing this. That would have had to be about 10 years of time. And despite that encouraging word, how these people have done so well, there is still something that Paul prays for them. They haven't arrived. They are not, they have not just plateaued in how well they're doing. Actually, Paul knows they still need something. And it's something that he needs to ask God to grant to them. They have been commended for their love, but yet they still need something more. Notice what, how verse 9 begins. And really we should recognize, even, even before we get into what Paul prays for them, that these things, these petitions, do not work like bullet points of, Here's one thing you need, here's a second thing you need, here's a third thing you need. Okay? Actually, these segments in this prayer are linked together. You can think of it like segments in a telescope, where, yes, they all collapse into one another, but actually, once you get one, it can extend to another one, and another, and another. And so what Paul prays for these people, people who he's already commended for their support, their partnership, the love they have shown them. In verse 9, it is his prayer that your love may abound more and more. Yes, these people... They have given of themselves, even sacrificially. But yet Paul prays, Paul knows that these people, they need to increase. Their love needs to abound more and more. He wants their, the ability in themselves that as they give, that it would increase. It would be overflowing more and more. I mean, Paul has been a recipient of this. And Paul knows this is a strength of theirs, but he knows it can increase. But with this overflow of love, this overflow of them giving of themselves, notice how Paul frames this as well. Yes, he wants this to overflow, but two things are needed to help channel this love so that it doesn't merely get wasted. Okay. 
You know, last year and this year also, more than normal here in Utah, we're a bit more conscious conscious about how we use our water, are we not? We know it's been a low water year. Again, okay, we, needed, we needed a big dose of water over the winter, and we didn't get it. <laughs> and so whatever water we use to water our lawn or to water our gardens that we're hoping to plant soon, okay, it's Mother's Day, it's that time of year. Okay? Okay? We want to make sure that whatever water we use, that it gets used for the purpose it's intended to. That we, it just doesn't get wasted. I mean, we, we see that in our neighbors sometimes, right? Not, not us. We would never do that. We would never waste our water. Okay? But, but those around us, ah, they haven't adjusted their sprinkler. It's hitting their driveway. They don't need to water their driveway. What are they thinking? Okay. Why are they watering at 2 o'clock in the afternoon on a hot summer day? Okay. It's better to water at another time. Well, this is what Paul is referencing. Yes, I want to see your love abound so that it's overflowing. But, you know, you need, a, you need something to kind of rein yourselves in okay, so that it's not wasted. You need to be a good steward of what you have. So what is needed? What does, what does verse 9 tell us? Yes, he wants your love to abound more and more, but needs to be channeled with knowledge and with all discernment. What is needed? Well, one thing is knowledge. Love should be exercised not out of ignorance, but actually with the facts. It needs to have the facts of the matter and hold them in light of what God's word says. So in order to really exercise love appropriately, you need to know your Bible. You need to know the wisdom, the truth that is there. Does God's word in this situation that I have, this opportunity that I have to perhaps meet a need of someone, to to reach out and help, is there a situation, is there somehow that God's word actually addresses a similar thing? Is there something I should bring to bear here? But it's not just that knowledge that's needed. Also, also what we have is discernment. Or in other words, you might have in your translation is judgment. This is really the ability or the skill of being able to have insight or perception that ability to, to, yes, that might be the stated facts of the situation, but even to be able to read between the lines. 
that's really a skill, is it not? That's something that we need to grow in. And Christians have had to exercise this before. I'll just give you a, a historical example. And that is Christians have had to exercise discernment in separating themselves in what are called ecumenical movements. Okay? And if that's a strange term to you, an ecumenical movement is a movement to try and bring the cooperation and unity of all Christians together. That sounds like a pretty good thing, right? Okay. Should Christians work together? Yeah. Okay. But the problem, historically, has been, okay, well, how do we define what a Christian is? Okay. What, what definition are we using? And some have been far too loose in what their definition of a Christian is. It's, well, a Christian is whoever says they're a Christian. Well, unfortunately, that's not quite good enough. I mean, I could say that I play middle linebacker in the NFL, but that doesn't make it true. Some of you know that's not true. You're like, you're tall enough, but yeah, you're not big enough. You know, this this definition of Christianity, this actually became an issue, in a major issue in 1957. Billy Graham, the famous evangelist, he was going to put on a series of of meetings where he would preach in New York City. And he called upon lots of Christians to come and join him and help him in putting this on. But from some that he invited to work with him, many Christians were like, you know, those people, that background, that doctrine that they hold to, they believe in a different gospel. They say they're Christians, but in how someone actually comes to Christ, it is different. They have strayed. And if we're to join forces with them, it's going to blur what the gospel actually is. If someone comes forward in these meetings to accept Christ and they're referred to a counselor, what kind of gospel are they going to be leading them to? And so some Christians, they just had to say, you know what? We're, we're going to back out of this because it distorts what the gospel says. Yes, we know there's an opportunity to do good, but it's going to damage the gospel. We need discernment to be able to read through the lines on some things. Yes, there are these opportunities to show love. And so when you have this 
God-given impulse to actually give of yourself, exercise your love with knowledge, knowledge of what the Bible has to say, with discernment. And in doing so, this is what we're set up for, what starts in verse 10, in doing this, you will not only be able to distinguish between good and bad, okay? I mean, that's a good skill to have, okay? to be able to learn between that's good and that's bad, but also in verse 10, so that you may approve what is excellent. Okay? That's being able to distinguish between good, better, and what is truly best. And that happens, okay, you do this, this is so that you can approve. That word approve, that's often used of testing something or examining something, having, taking a careful look. And in doing so, you're able to examine what is truly best. And that actually implies that there are some things that are not best. And you know, even in the pages of the New Testament, we are even given examples of where actually Paul gives instructions to Christians as to how to handle certain situations so that they could do what is best. Let me just give two for you. I mean, these are, this is within the Bible. Okay? In 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, Paul addresses a situation that there were some believers within a church, within a community of Christians, and they were not working. He calls them idle. Okay? They were just living. They weren't doing anything. And the church, apparently, the, the Christians around them had actually taken it upon themselves to meet the needs of these people. And apparently, from this situation, okay, there, there were, this was ongoing. Okay, this wasn't just a temporary thing. And it wasn't that there was some type of disability that prevented them from working. And in fact, it actually seems from what Paul addresses is that these people were confused about when Christ was going to return. As if some people thought, hey, Christ is going to come back soon, so why bother getting a job and spending my life working? I mean, why go through the daily grind? And, and after all, there's, there's some wealthy people in our community of, of Christian believers, and, and they're willing to help take care of us. And Paul actually rebukes them. And this is something you're probably 
familiar with that he says, if anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. Okay? If you're not willing to work, you shouldn't eat. He says, yes, Christ is coming back, but that's no excuse to live recklessly. Another situation in Paul's first letter to Timothy in chapter 5. Apparently Timothy, he's a young pastor of a church, and part of that was caring for widows. And what Paul does is actually give him some guidelines of before the church, the, the whole community of Christians steps in and actually takes on the living of a widow, he actually gives them some guidelines. Okay? I mean, that's a natural impulse. That's a good impulse to see a need. Hey, there's a widow in our midst. Let's take care of her. That's a good thing. But Paul also steps in and he just kind of suggests some things, okay? Is she a widow indeed? Which is not a, is she indeed a widow because her husband did indeed die, okay? That's not what he's pointing out. He's saying, is this a woman who is truly destitute and needs someone to care for her? Is there family or some other thing in society that can meet those needs. Also, what stage of life is she in? Paul throws out that a woman that's fully taken on should be no less than 60. Okay? Of, of someone who really needs the full support of, of the church. And even then, also, Paul mentions there's, there's some character things to be considered. Okay? Of someone who's taken on is, is, has she set her hope in God? Does she continue in prayer? Does she have a reputation of good works? She's shown hospitality, washed the feet of the saints cared for the afflicted, devoted herself to every good work. Okay? That's not a setup of, she's got to be perfect. Okay? No one's perfect. But, but to a certain extent, there's, those things should be brought to bear. It should be brought into the consideration. Now, I bring those two scenarios just to make us aware that there are situations that we do in, in giving of ourselves, we need to be equipped with knowledge, knowledge of God's word. We need to be equipped with the facts and examine what is going on to see what is best. And this is done, going through that process is done, with two things in view. Okay? This is what 
what Paul mentions. Okay, we do this, we equip ourselves with knowledge and all discernment so that we can approve what is excellent, we can arrive at, okay, what is really best? And we do this so that two things would be the result. Okay? One is what is going to be the effect on us, on ourselves. Is it going to produce or lead us to be pure and blameless for the day of Christ? Notice it's not, well, they just really have a need. And, I mean, yes, that's apparent. But also... Would we be pure and blameless on the day of Christ? And also the next thing comes at the very end of verse 11 is, is it going to be to the glory and praise of God? Because you know, that's what we're living for, is it not? That whatever we do is not simply for ourselves, but it's so that God would be glorified. If you grew up learning a catechism question, questions to teach you Christian doctrine, okay, that was maybe the first question. What is the chief end of man? To enjoy God and glorify him forever. That is what we live for. And so in doing this, in, in approving the things that are truly excellent, okay, we really do need to consider what is the effect on ourselves. Okay. You know, in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, we're told that our works, the works that we do, They will be tried by fire. And the analogy that that plays with that is that some things, we might find them to be wood, hay, and stubble where they are burned up and they're gone. But other things, they will last. They will be gold that is refined, gold that is revealed. And that's what's going to occur on the day of Christ. And what, what we want to be found is we want to be found pure and blameless. That word pure, another translation you might have for that word is the word sincere. Okay? And this word actually comes out of the realm of pottery. Okay? In the ancient world, okay, nearly all housewares, okay, think of all the dishes you have in your house. Well, in the ancient world, nearly all of those were made out of pottery. Okay? It was all made out of clay. And in producing those, there was a delicate balance for that pottery not to be too thick and heavy, 
but also to be not be too thin where it would break or crack. And so some people who made these, they learned that they could cover up their mistakes by using some wax. They could cover up their mistakes. And in using that wax, they could then actually let that wax dry, and then they could paint over it, and it looked as if you couldn't see it. And so if you're going into a potter's shop to buy something inside, you look at it, it looks nice, but if you were to take it out and hold it up to the sunlight, you could tell if there was a crack that had been covered up by wax. The wax wouldn't hold up the sunlight. And that's where this Greek word comes from. It's something that has been tested by the sun. And the Latin word for that is sincere. That's where we get our English word sincere. And that's what we are to be. We are to be sincere in how we do things. Paul actually used this word of himself in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, where he said that he was not a peddler of God's word to that church in Corinth. He was not a peddler, someone who used God's word to his own advantage, but rather he was a man of sincerity who was commissioned by God and spoke what God wanted him to say. And folks, that's what we need to be, not people not acting out of our own self-interest of what's truly best for me, but sincerely serving God, knowing that what we have done with the opportunities God has given us, we have had him as our highest priority. And so when we serve, that has an effect on ourselves. Did we engage in things that truly were not best? Did we do things that, that actually diverted from what we could have done? And in doing this, yes, we're being sincere, but also we are being blameless. That is what we are striving to be. This is to protect others from finding offense in our actions. Now, that could be taken too far, could it not? Where all we think of is what will people think? That's why we're balanced out. That actually, yes, we are to consider, yes, what do people think, but ultimately, what we do is, is it to the praise and glory of God? And that trumps what people think, does it not? And in doing this, we do this not to earn righteousness, okay? but 
we know that these works that we do engage in, they are actually a fruit that is produced from righteousness. Notice, notice in verse 11. In doing this, okay, we approve the things that are excellent so that we would be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. And at that moment, we would be filled with the fruit of righteousness. Okay, that's a righteousness that's not from our own making. It's not something we possess, but it's a righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ. Paul will express this even later in this letter, in chapter 3, Philippians chapter 3. Paul will actually list out the things that he once viewed as really good accomplishments in his life. Of how good he was, he was a Jew and how great he was, the lineage that he had, the things that he did. But he says in Philippians chapter 3, verse 7, Whatever gain I had through those things, I counted them as loss for the sake of Christ. He says, indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. And in doing so, in verse 9, he says that his goal is that he would be found in him, in Christ, not having a righteousness of my own that comes through the law, the law of doing things and holding up to some artificial standard. But no, this is the righteousness from God that depends on faith. That is simply believing, entrusting yourself to God. so any work we do, anything we do, that is a work of God in us. That doesn't merit anything. Okay? That's not what we're going to boast about or be proud of on the day of Christ that, look at what I've done. No, actually... We'll just have fruit and say, you know, it's all because of the righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ. And this will be to the glory and the praise of God. Okay? That's what we live for, is for his glory. And folks, that shouldn't be something we say, merely say. It's easy to say, you know, hey, all the glory of God. But actually to glorify him, that means that you are actually displaying that to other people. You are showing that what I've do, I'm doing, it isn't just for me. I'm doing it for God. You know, this, this passage, this is something that is very hard to live out. It's very hard to exercise these things. 
mean to exercise your love, every act of you giving of yourself and giving of your resources in this way, because I mean, the standard's set pretty high, is it not? Okay. I mean, to approve whatever you do so that it's truly excellent, what is best? And I mean, from what the scripture says, we can't put it so high that we never do anything out of love. We are still to love and to give of ourselves. So as we kind of bring this down to, okay, what do we do with this? Okay, given this is what God's word says. Well, let's just keep, let's just keep two fundamental things in view. Okay? In order to do this rightly, in order to have our love abound more and more, and to exercise it in this way, we need to be filled with a knowledge of God's word. We need knowledge. And it's a knowledge that's not just from us. We need to immerse ourselves in what God's word says be taking it in in large doses so that when we face something in life, we think first, innately, what does the Bible say? Does the Bible address this? And even then, those of you who have like, I think I've tried to do that with my life. I've tried to just fill myself with God's word. There are still situations we find ourselves in where it's like, I still don't know what to do. What do you do then? Well, let's keep in mind, what have we been reading in this paragraph? This is a prayer. This is a prayer. This is something we need God to give us. Because we're not going to find the wisdom to practice this out perfectly in ourselves. I mean, being filled with the knowledge of the Bible, that, that helps. But we need God to do this, to give us grace in this. So as we close, let's pray to that end. Let's pray that God would grant this to us. Let's pray. (coughs) Oh God, we thank you for your word. And oh God, we we see the, the high standard that we that your word calls us to. How that our love, our giving of ourselves needs to increase more and more. It needs to abound. But, oh God, we see how we need to be filled with knowledge and discernment. 
God, we, we need help in approving or examining things to arrive at what is excellent. Oh God, may you help us in this. God, we submit ourselves to your word, what it says. God, we need your grace to let it guide us. No, God, may you aid us so that we would be pure, that we would act in sincerity and that we would be blameless, blameless before our own conscience and even blameless, for our, blameless among outsiders and that we would be ultimately to the praise and the glory of God. Oh, God, we need your help in this. But God, we pray that this would be done not for ourselves, but so that you would be praised. For it's in Christ's name that we pray this. Amen.